0: Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast podcast. I'm your host Jane Portman, and today our special guest is Natalie Nagel, co-founder and CEO of Wildbit, which is a product agnostic team, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. This episode is brought to you by Balsamic. A Balsamic customer recently called it the only wireframing tool that doesn't make me feel stupid try the new web app free for 30 days at balsamic.cloud. You'll be productive in no time. Hi, Natalie. Hi. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to start with a short Blitz questionnaire so that we can learn about you first and then continue with the main topic. How does that sound? Sounds great. Question number one is, surprisingly, what do you do for a living?
1: I am the co-founder and CEO of what I think is the best little software company in the world, um, and I work with twenty-eight of basically the best humans ever. So I'm very lucky in my day job.
0: Awesome! I had a pleasure to visit your office back in I don't know if exactly, no, 2014 or something. Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it is gorgeous, and it must have been improved even more since then. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we're very lucky to have it and uh, like to have this little little home in Philadelphia. Fantastic. Uh, question number two is how did you get there? What's your short story?
1: Oh, uh, so in, I met uh, I run the business with my husband, Chris, who I met in 2004 and he started the business in 2000. So uh, I met we were he was running a basically a client consulting business. Uh, building web apps, or not Not even web apps, like brochure sites, uh, Flash, lots of Flash. Um, and so we started dating and I started helping him, you know, wherever I could, just, you know, books, support, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually the, the business changed dramatically into what you see today, which is, you know, a product only uh, software company. And that's just kind of how my role has evolved as the business changed. You know, we kind of solidified our spaces in the, in the company and that's how I became the CEO.
0: You have a whole bunch of projects under your belt. Uh, what is the brief history of them? Whew. Uh
1: Beanstalk? So uh, we were a consulting company, and uh, we actually our very first product, which is no longer here anymore, was an email marketing service called Newsberry, which was a uh, we built for customers uh, because they we our customers needed to send newsletters, and then eventually that turned. Uh, into us having a need for version control, ho- uh, hosted version control. Chris was managing all our SVN servers and it was a pain in the ass. So he decided that we needed a, another product called Beanstalk and Beanstalk turned 10 last year. So it's hosted started as hosted SVN. Obviously now it's Git and deployments and all kinds of other stuff. And then kind of similar vein, we were sending a lot of emails for Beanstalk and we had no idea, you know, on behalf of our customers, commit notifications, password reset emails, um invitations to join somebody's account and we would get support and we you know somebody's like oh i invited my my client and they didn't get the email and i don't know what happened and we would be blind because you know it was using internal mail servers and we had no idea no visibility into how our transactional email was doing and that's kind of the birth of uh, Postmark, which turns 8 in April, so we've been doing that for a while. And then um, Deploybot, which we just sold in December, uh, that's no longer our project, but that's you know it was a great little robot that we managed. And then we are working on <laughs> our new product called Conveyor, uh, Conveyor.com, which is going to be the next iteration of Beanstalk. Mm-hmm. It's just a more thoughtful approach to uh, solving the workflow for building software products or building web apps. And uh, that's coming soon to a a theater near you. Hopefully sometime in June, we're accepting beta invitations. And that's going to be a really fun project.
0: Fantastic. So you're not really all over the place. This is very much focused. You only have two big big directions you're working on. Right
1: now, we're we're trying very hard to have two very solid directions, which is Postmark, uh, where uh, the majority of my team is on Postmark. And then we have a small kind of special ops team on Conveyor building that product. The last couple of years,
0: awesome, yeah, awesome. Next question: What does your typical day look like? Uh, there is no typical day. <laughs> uh, I think
1: just in terms of uh, themes, I guess, so to speak. I my job is to take care of the team and to think that's how I look at it. So it really varies greatly, depending on, um, you know, what the priorities are during that time. But it's usually circled around spending a lot of time with my team and making sure that everybody's in the right place and doing, you know, feeling good. And then on the other side, it's thinking strategically about how to, you know, make our team better or build
0: product better, if that makes sense. Absolutely. What What do you enjoy the most and the least about your work? Ooh, uh,
1: I definitely love my team and, and work that I do with my team and on my team the most and thinking about ways to make their lives better and more enriching. Uh, thinking about how we can be more productive by working less <laughs> with my new <laughs> hobby. Uh, and I love, I really love thinking strategically on how, how the products have to shift and move around so that we can stay around for another 10 years. I don't love the finance and other parts of operations that unfortunately I still fall under my responsibilities so I'm actually right now thinking about uh, an operations finance role so that I can do more of the things I love and less of the things I'm not very good at
0: I don't think there's ever been a guest who likes you know billing and, and finances and taxes and everything so yeah, no, I believe, you're not alone I believe it <laughs> What is your next big thing? I guess it's Conveyor. I think from the team, yeah. I think, uh, well, uh, both of them, I think, are big. I think Postmark,
1: um, we have a lot of really great things coming up. We're doing a bunch of hiring this year for Postmark's team, kind of taking it to the next level. Obviously, conveyor is really big. Uh, me, personally, I want to spend more time writing and speaking, uh, just really committed to sharing our journey towards building a business that's focused primarily on the team. Uh, and not really following all those like standard business rules that are kind of written, but I don't know why they exist. So like things like really proving the 32 hour work week and and things like that, I want to spend more time being thoughtful and sharing that story.
0: Awesome. Let's go back to product agnostic teams. Uh, You've given a lot of talks on the topic. And uh, I'm really proud that you managed to pull it off. But could you explain to our listeners, what do you mean by saying a product agnostic team that you run? So
1: I look at uh, Wildbit as its own product, kind of this umbrella company that lives on top of it. And everybody who works for Wildbit works, or everybody who's on this team kind of works for Wildbit. And the way I look at our products, Chris and I look at them as something that enables this team to live or to be in existence. So the products that we run, Beanstalk, Postmark, when it was Deploybot, Conveyor, Whatever's next, they are in existence to enable us to succeed. So to enable to provide for us for our lives the, the things that we want. And so, I think partially we're lucky in that while it became started as a consulting practice, so it never brought people together necessarily for a product first. It was you know we became a team first and then started building products. And so for us that means that. One product closes, another opens, and the team stays the same. So, and I think a lot of traditional companies, a product, an idea for a product comes, to, uh, in, you know, to be, and a founder, co-founder, start hiring people for that product. And the ability for that company to survive depends solely on the success of that product. For Chris and I, the ability to survive depends solely on Wildbit, and the products that we build are there to enable us to allow Wildbit to be around for another 10, 15 years.
0: Did that idea solidify from day one? Uh, you mentioned you come from a consulting background. That difference stems from there. But how did you arrive to that uh, framework con- conclusion, understanding that you're a product agnostic team? Oh,
1: definitely not day one. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, We've been around for 17 years, I promise. We were not
1: having deep, thoughtful conversations about what kind of business you <laughs> want to run when you're trying to just figure out how to pay bills. Uh, I think over the last maybe five years, we've been spending a lot more time defining who we are. Um, I think we always knew who we are. I mean, the the best example I can bring to you is when Beanstalk uh, started to kind of get momentum, we were still doing consulting work. And people always ask me, how did you switch from consulting to product? And uh, I think the, the thing that surprises folks the most is that our way of doing it was we looked at our total payroll, like our total expenses, which is right, basically payroll. And we said, okay, how much do we need Beanstalk to make so that everybody stops doing consulting and starts working on Beanstalk? And we knew from the very beginning, like nobody was ever going to get fired. So we had to keep doing consulting work until Beanstalk made enough money to cover everybody's salary. And that's what we did. And everybody moved on to Beanstalk. So I think like back then, you know, that was maybe eight years ago, almost nine years ago. We knew maybe without calling it product agnostic, without... Saying it out loud, we were already in a place where we existed for Wild at first and that the products were not going to be the kind of the driving force of who stays, who goes, and, and what the, the, how we drove the mission. But saying it out loud is definitely a more recent uh, kind of soul-searching and ability to define things more clearly and articulately on what we want to do and, and how
0: we define who we are. Relevant to, to the structure of your team, The next few questions are: How do you organize? uh, How do you structure that uh, team we're talking about? And how do you organize the work on multiple products at once? Do you have dedicated teams for each product, or is it relevant to the skill set? How does it work for you? We have dedicated teams for sure. Uh, We used to kind of
1: flip people around, but that was way too complicated. Um, We have dedicated teams, and uh, you know, we tend to hire at least more recently, specifically for a product, but people have the flexibility to shift around. So um, right now I have a very large team on Postmark, and they're dedicated, you know, engineering, uh, systems, design, you know, all kinds of marketing, uh, customer success, that kind of thing. And then on the conveyor side, we have the conveyor beanstalk side. We have a small kind of special ops team, very uh, nimble and can move quickly and can... You know break things and iterate fast and you know there's when there's no customers it's easy um, and so they're kind of operating very differently and so we've always looked at product life as an important indicator or dictator I guess of how you establish a team and what processes you put in place and so for a, a product like postmark with thousands of customers and you know Hundreds of thousands of users and, you know, and the whole thing, like you have to be more thoughtful and more strategic about how you would release things and how you attach, you know, who works on what and how big of a success team you build and all that kind of stuff. A product like Conveyor, you can work really, you can, you don't have to use Jira, you know, you could just kind of like <laughs> hack away and, and, and make things kind of happen as quickly as you can possibly write code. So they're just, they function differently. But people move around. I just, uh, Postmark's growing and we need more, a bigger success team, customer success team. And so uh, somebody from the Beanstalk conveyor side on their success team just moved over to the Postmark side full-time. So we try to keep the roles full-time, but we move people around as needed.
0: Mm-hmm. so you had a few products over time you had uh, four I guess at some point then you sold one um, and now you're focusing on two big directions essentially you could have focused on one why is that you're building new products is that because you love new products or just because you have that need to execute the stock idea in a new fashion <laughs> Uh age-old question. Um, We, uh,
1: it's complicated. Well, no, maybe it's not so complicated. I think there's a couple reasons. So, from a, again, from a wild bit perspective, Chris and I like having our risk spread out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I just like knowing that we have multiple options in, in more or less the same industry but different industries and, and that gives us, you know, a lower risk profile, I think, to some degree. Uh, Another extremely important one, and the reason we decided to build Conveyor was because I wanted to, Chris and I wanted to make sure that the team that was working on Beanstalk got to do something that they were really excited about. And we were looking at Beanstalk and saying, you know, we have a a huge user base on that product and it's harder to make drastic, dramatic changes when you have an existing user base. And so we were really fighting a um, feature price war with our, you know, with the, the market and I don't really enjoy that the team doesn't enjoy that and you're kind of put in a box a little bit on what you get to work on what you get to play around with when you have tons of users who are very happy with the product as is and so speaking with my team a bunch it was clear that they had a bigger vision that they really wanted to see come through and it's our job chris's and my job to make sure that our team gets to work on things that get them excited bring them joy bring them you know bring their passions out and it's our responsibility to enable them to do that. So, you know, building conveyor was the right thing to do to make sure that that team was excited and focused and got a chance to build something new that they were really passionate about. So I think, you know, it's in our best interest for a while, but to have multiple products from a longevity, sustainability perspective. And it's in our best interest from us making sure we're creating a team that's able to work on things that they love by letting them try new things and, and, and experimenting and playing in in new, in new sandboxes, I guess.
0: That is a fantastic answer. Why were you so uh, (laughs) not sure about (laughs) answering that?
1: Because I think the, you know, I spent a lot of time with our other software founder or, you know, business software business founders and things like that. And, and our own advisors. And one of the most common question that people ask me and ask Chris is always like, Why are you doing this? Why do you have multiple products? Like all hands on one, you know, like Postmark is in a very lucrative uh, industry. Our competition is, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Um, Big giant companies, you know, some of them are just IPO'd, you know. So it's a a very interesting um, kind of big market right now. And, you know, we're leaving a lot on the table, not going all hands on, you know, all hands into this product and pushing it really hard. And so everybody's always asking me, like, why are you multiple products? And, you know, I give them that answer and they're always like, yeah, you're crazy. And like,
0: yeah, well, I sleep better at night. So that's all that matters. <laughs> if if I were in this stage, my I was assuming your answer would be because you just like creating new things for, for the purpose of creating them, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but- that's. Definitely not. No. I mean, we're very (laughs) practical when it comes to stuff like there's a we definitely love creating things, but it's a team of very practical people who, again, like our products enable us to live. So more products, more support, more headaches, more stress. That's not really the way we do things. Um, So, you know, we don't have 30 little products that each make a few thousand bucks, you know, because that's a lot of headache. That's a lot of overhead. But at the same time. We look at the things that we have and and where people are placed, and you know try to make sure that everybody's in a good place
0: There is another model run by uh, someone we both know j d uh who is mm-hmm. also doing product agnostic stuff, but in a different manner, instead of growing wild one product wildly, he keeps acquiring new quality products, <sighs> adding them to the adding to the overall revenue while having an agency agency service agency. Uh, working on all of them all together. What is your take on that? I know you're totally different, but what do you think of that model?
1: I mean, I think JD's great. I know him personally. <laughs> um, you know, he bought Sifter, which is Garrett's product, Garrett Diamond's product. Mm-hmm. Garrett works with me now. And so, you know, that's a, a personal, personal place there. But, I, you, you know, like you said it right, it's vastly different. I think there's, what, what I love about JD and what he does is he's looking at software as a business. Um, as a regular business, now we're capital SaaS businesses are very capital efficient, but we a lot of times get stuck on these ideas that somehow software businesses aren't regular businesses with supply and demand and can be very good without going gangbusters and you know tripling every year and all that stuff. And so, I think what JD does is really special. Um, he's great at it. His team is great at it, and they build things. They've they've acquired products that solve pains for people, and it's really exciting not my way because I think we started as a product, you know, we, we we became a product company because we love building products, right? We love solving problems and iterating on them constantly. And so we don't have, um, we have a different mindset, I think, on our team. You know, everybody's like, you know, the team that built Beanstalk is still together. That same team, 10 years later, are building conveyor. You know, there's something really special about that energy and about the, the desire to solve problems and iterate on them and make them better. So I just think there's just a different way.
0: Let's talk about the design process. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's too late to talk about design because you have uh, mature products as well, and there probably design is not the top issue, especially considering the service nature of your business. But what what design process do you follow? Uh, how do you organize a UI UX part of your team? How do they work together with the developers?
1: Oh, I mean, design is extremely important. We start everything design first. So for us, uh, user experience, I mean, the reason Beanstalk was as great as it was and, and, and Postmark and all that is we're always thinking about user experience first. So we, we build in very tightly integrated design engineering teams, um, design first, uh, and they work very closely together. Our designers are also front-end developers, so they you know execute on their design, so to speak. Uh, and they're pretty advanced front-end developers at this point. They're writing all kinds of code. Um, and so uh, for us, it's a, a very tight partnership between a designer and an engineer who's executing the back-end or whatever because for the, for the uh, we've learned over the years that you have to keep those teams very close so that you can build past your limits but also not design past your limits too far, right? So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but there's a beautiful sweet spot where you, the designer's pushing for the best user experience possible and the engineer's pushing for the least painful solution (laughs) as possible. And somewhere in the middle is where the magic happens. And so if you do a handoff, at least in our experience, if there's too much of a handoff, you end up taking things to end up taking a lot longer because you either have designed something that's way too hard to implement or you have an engineer who's... Pushing people in the wrong designer in the wrong direction, saying nothing's possible. So somewhere in that middle ground is where I think we found success, and we've been able to really design things with the user first, but in a a flexible, um, you know, iterative way, so we can kind of ship things faster.
0: What is the toolkit that your designers use? Do they go directly to writing code, or do they use I don't know Sketch, Adobe XD, anything like that?
1: uh they sketch a little bit I mean I think they most of the time they go directly to code it really honestly Jane, it depends a lot on what we're mm-hmm, working on. Mm-hmm. Um, conveyor for example for the first two years we were building it was a native Mac client and so that was a lot of sketch and, and uh, you know because Eugene wasn't able to actually implement anything now we're moving into more of a electron uh, you know and, and he's now writing you know a ton of code and so designing and implementing right away so it it, it really really depends on the work that we're doing if we're on postmark side if we're doing user testing we might design things and post them in envision and and have you know people clicking around it it really depends we, we use the tool that makes the most sense at the time we still sketch on paper you know like there's plenty of times when somebody
0: sketches something on paper and posts it and says here's kind of where my mind is so i think it varies you mentioned user testing, and that's another question I'd love to ask. Um, you have a pretty mature, successful products. How do you go around introducing new features or deciding whether the existing ones work well? Um,
1: <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that we're spectacular at it. Uh, I think uh, we've gotten a lot more sophisticated on the Postmark side, but you know that's still... Sophisticated is a funny word for building features that customers want, right? Because (laughs) it's always a tricky balance between us knowing it and them saying it. And uh, I think for Postmark, we do a combination of our own kind of gut feels, right? Things that we have listened to customers and heard their problems and try to figure out what they're actually looking for. Uh, And that's how some of the more innovative things have come to be. Uh, We spend... A lot of time talking to users after the fact and we try to iterate on the work that we do but we're not great at it we're still trying to find a good balance of going back to something and improving it again because I think the instinct is always let's build it and then all right, what's next you know we shipped it phew let's go you know (laughs) and so I think like getting into a better cadence of going back to something and saying okay we've listened to users for the last two months let's go back and make improvements and then on this other side is specific user requests we've been tracking them very closely now and uh, we go back and we update folks and we say, we built this feature for you. And so our product manager on the team, Rian, keeps an eye on what customers' success is seeing and hearing. And, and uh, they go back and they try to sneak little fixes, big fixes into the iterations to make sure that we're giving the users what they're asking for specifically. I think there has to be a balance of what people are specifically asking for, because that's what they need and what people maybe don't know they need, but that you can innovate on and and create in a better way for, for people.
0: Side question, you managed, with Postmark, you managed to stand out in an industry that before that used to be kind of commoditized. And I know you did that by focusing on quality and just one single parameter. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so Postmark, uh, so
1: when we launched Postmark, we were really trying to solve the issue of your application emails, having visibility into what happens with your application emails. So we use the term transactional email, which, you know, over the years has kind of changed definitions a little bit. There's the legal can-spam definition of transactional email, but basically the difference between a user-triggered, user-action-triggered email in your app you know, which goes, you know, password resets, welcome emails, invoices, invites, comment notifications versus your marketing campaigns, right? Your gap newsletter, your MailChimp, right? What, mail, what you use MailChimp for, import a list, A-B testing, subject line testing, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so what we came out to solve specifically without really doing it as a necessarily call to being different was that we came out and said, we want to build an API-based product that enables apps to send emails effectively because back then everybody was just using their own kind of built-in mail servers. And so that was something we did from the beginning and said what we were going to do is we were going to only do transactional email because back in the day we ran an email marketing product and we knew that transactional and marketing emails are handled very differently on the ISP level and also on the user level because they require different, different features and they're used by different parts of your company, right? Your marketing department, you know, your, your business owner is using MailChimp, but your engineering team is the one setting up and, and implementing your transactional emails. So we kind of put our foot down and said we're only going to do transactional email uh, for deliverability and for feature set, it just to, to, to really nail a market, and that's kind of what we've done. And then as the market's gotten, you know, really blown up, and I think it's contracting a little bit now. But as it really blew up, uh, it uh, you know the API based service, what people were calling transactional email. There was a lot of them, but they were all also accepting marketing emails. And so as we were watching that kind of unfold, we started to clearly identify what made Postmark unique and what made the customers that choose Postmark so special. And the biggest identifier of somebody who finds tremendous value in Postmark is if their application emails really matter to them. Because our product, Postmark's deliverability to the inbox and speed to the inbox is unparalleled like nobody can come close to us and the reason for that is because we focus on transactional email and we focus on speed so one of the things that i always say is um, you know when somebody clicks password reset you know or let's say they buy a license you know to to your product and they get a license key in the mail they go and they switch to their gmail tab and expect that email to show up right away they click refresh once they click refresh twice three times Two, three minutes later, it's not there. They're emailing support. That's a support ticket now, right? So now you're missing email, costing you the relationship, costing you business, costing you money in the amount of support you have to now uh, you know, accept and, and handle. Whereas when you send a newsletter, whether it goes at 2 p.m. or 4 p.m., nobody's sitting there waiting desperately for your newsletter and <laughs> refreshing the page and emailing support because their Gap newsletter didn't show up. There's a vastly different user expectation for these types of emails. So what we've decided to focus on is very much the speed to which those emails get to the inbox. How quickly can we get them so that we can make sure you don't lose money, you don't lose time, you know, the the, the, the relationship with your customer. I almost said lose time and money. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: favorite,
1: favorite oh, you know, is <laughs> yeah right, oh, That's great. No, but you make sure that the relationship stays solid and that you don't, it doesn't cost you and support and and lost opportunity I think that's what's really important, and that's what we've really really stuck to we're leaving a lot of money on the table <laughs> most of our uh, team spends a lot of their time saying no to people because they want to send their transactional uh, their marketing emails through us and so we're looking at expanding our definition of transactional because it's changed right like drip emails, uh, behavioral sequence emails, things like that still need an API. You're not going to do that through a MailChimp. So we're trying to learn a little bit more about the needs of our customers and what their application emails look like and what the broader definition of that is. But I don't want to ever have a WYSIWYG editor. I'm not going to have a list import. I'm not going to... That's the stuff for the MailChimps of the world. You know, that's not for me. What (laughs) I want to do is create the best experience for the engineering team and the product owners who are managing these web apps to make sure that they're critically important emails to their end users get where they need to go as quickly as possible
0: this is an example of doing one thing really well the most important one and then everything else comes or comes from the quality of your team i guess
1: <laughs> yes they're they're brilliant absolutely brilliant
0: you've been rather religious about managing their time about protecting them from distractions i've seen your talk at bacon biz uh, and the way you manage Slack has been pretty amazing. I don't know if that changed over two years, but could you give us a comment? How do you handle project management? How do you talk to people? How do they use Slack?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we uh, are pretty religious about is making sure that work is efficient, efficient. So that we can spend a lot of time on our personal stuff, so I think that's really like the core of where it all comes from and so we spend a lot of time thinking about how we do our work and you're talking about people who are very passionate about their their skill sets and and their their craft right they're constantly honing their craft so they want to enjoy their work they want to do the best work they can in the most effective way possible so I, we look we spend a lot of time reviewing our Communication tools, right? So it kind of extends past project management. I think it's just the way in which we communicate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all the various ways that we get distracted. So we use Slack, we use Basecamp, we use Jira, we use Confluent. I mean, there's just a slew of crap, right? And we use email, and uh, and then in person, you know, well, not in person, but you know, meetings, you know, face to face, and all that kind of stuff. And so one of the things that we always talk about is being thoughtful about whose time you're stealing you know and and taking the time to think can i can this wait is this urgent am i being very clear and explicit of what i what feedback i'm asking for so it's it's become so ingrained that derek uh, one of the designers on our team built a little slack bot called Pigeonbot. i think it's pigeonbot.com um and uh it basically instead of pinging somebody in Slack, you can just go slash email and then send them an email in Slack. So it like, you have a quick note, right? But it's not urgent. And enable your partner, you know, your teammate to answer it when they're ready to do their kind of less focused work. So, you know, we're just constantly thinking about ways to enable the team to be focused as much as possible and to control their own distractions
0: amazing. Can you tell us a bit more about how you run your team in general? What amazing perks you have like the development of that 32-hour work week, your vacations, retreats, the office space? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean we we try to do as much as we can with the money that we have. So, <laughs> you know, we're not we're bootstrapped, we're profitable, we're not we didn't get, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in VC, so we have to be thoughtful about how we spend money. So we try to focus on Things that maybe aren't necessarily expensive, but that enable the team to have, you know, the kind of work. I I don't even like work life balance because I don't I think it's kind of been used up, but to have that balance of working on the things that matter and going home. And so uh, 32 hour work week is an experiment that is going really well. Uh, We started it in May for the summer and basically You know, I've been spending a lot of time as a team talking about focus work and what that means. And, you know, when you start reading about the amount of time your brain actually can stay really focused into really deep work, you realize that there's really only maybe four hours a day max that any of us are like crazy focused. And so when you look at that, you say, like, okay, what are you spending the rest of your time on? And it's probably procrastination. It's probably some busy work. Uh, it's probably other stuff. And so we said, like, why can't we, can we see if we can get away with doing it for only working four days a week? So real, I say 32-hour work week because people hear four days a week and think we're working 60 hours in four days. <laughs> that's <not the> <laughs> so, you know, and so that's just one example of a way in which we're trying to push boundaries a little bit and say, like, there's no rules. So why can't we do the same thing? Or can we do the same thing we were doing in 40 hours and 32? We have uh, a fixed vacation policy because I think people don't take enough vacations. And so I want to make sure that I can count them and that they know <laughs> how many days they have and they can use them. And so I think that's really important to us and we offer uh before four-day work weeks, we offered four, uh, 25 days off, and now we did moved it to 20 days off, but you also don't work Fridays, so that's kind of crazy. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, we do one, one annual retreat a year where the entire team gets together. They're mandatory because it's extremely important for us to talk to each other, cook together, eat together, share, you know, share meals, spend time planning and scheming, and just getting to know each other. That's really important. Um, and, and, you know, and we just do whatever we can. One of the things I'm most excited about right now is we hired, uh, somebody named Julie on our team, whose role is what we're calling team happiness and an office operations. So some of her job is the office operations, but a big part of her job is to focus on connecting the remote team with the non-remote team. Cause the non-remote team in Philly is small. It's only like 11 of us. But how do we put everybody together so that everybody's on an equal playing field? And so if we're doing something in the office, everybody feels it in their own you know, home offices. And so that's a project I'm really or a project, a person I'm really excited about on the team, the addition of that role to make sure that we're constantly focused on thinking about how the remote team feels and how we feel together collectively as a group.
0: It's amazing. We never touched on that. For some reason, I assume that most of your uh, team is actually sitting like in his neck in the next room, but you mentioned you have a lot of people remotely. Please tell us yeah. more how you manage that. Yeah, so
1: we're twenty. Oh goodness, twenty eight people I think right now. We just hired a couple more people, but um, we there's about eleven of us in Philly, uh, maybe ten full time, and the rest are spread all over the country and the rest of the world. Uh, we started as a remote company, so like. Seventeen years ago, Chris started with somebody in Romania, um, and we've been remote first up until about five years ago when we hired our first U.S. employee, five or six years ago. So, or sorry, Philadelphia employee. So, um, it's a process, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was much easier to be 100% remote than it is to be a hybrid. And so, we kind of have learned through some some bumps in the road when we first started to have the hybrid approach. It was we started realizing we were doing things in the office that we weren't sharing asynchronously like we used to be. And so there was, you know, some bumps in the road. Now we we try to look at at almost everything we do is remote. So everybody has their own office. Um, you know, we all get private offices and so everybody has their own office. And so when we do a call, even if four people are in the office and one person's remote, everybody does it from their own desk. It's just a small example that, um, you know, somebody brought to my attention a while ago, which, you know, when you're sitting four people on a couch and one person on the screen, that one person feels very left out. They have a hard time hearing. You know, they're, 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 they're not part of the overall uh, conversation. And so now we do little things like making sure that everybody's at their own desk, hiring Julie to focus on making sure that the remote team feels connected. Um, so there's just little things like that that we're constantly iterating on. And, and just, it's a work in progress. I don't know that we'll ever be perfect at it, but it's something we really, really care about and want to make sure we do well.
0: How do you manage the size of the team? Or when do you know when to hire? Is that dictated by product demands right now?
1: Yes. Uh, right now, we're, this is, we barely hired last, so two years ago, we did a big hiring push for Postmark. And then last year, we did almost none. And then this year, we're going to do another hiring push. Uh, The big catalyst to that was looking at Postmark as a product and saying, like, where do we want to take it next? And what are the things that we are really excited about that we don't have this capacity to do right now? So, you know, there's a funny thing about being bootstrapped and profitable and, you know, doing this long enough. You get into this real internal battle between profitability and kind of, do I spend the extra dollar, you know, and you're really, really tight with your belt. And so looking as a team and saying, all right, well, can we loosen it a little bit and get some of these projects that we really want to get done through, provide even better support, you know, build more features, whatever it is that we want to do, focus on some of the innovative things that we're working on. Um you know, having that discussion with a team and saying how, how much can we loosen the belt and be a little bit less profitable, but that means we get to do some of the things that we want. And that's always the balancing act. So for the most part, it's looking at the product and saying, what do we need? And then I think some of the hires have been Chris and I looking internally into our roles and how they've changed and where our value, where we bring the most value and where we need to let things go. So that finance operations role I was telling you about is a is an example of me saying that's a new role. That's not something we've ever had. So that's not really product driven, uh, but it's having a, a conversation internally and saying, "Is my value, or is the value I'm bringing in me looking at our finance pieces, or is it does it make more sense to?" Let somebody else better than me work on that and maybe actually teach us things and make sure that we're being more thoughtful about, you know, some of the operations of finance pieces. And I can spend more time working on the team and, the, and, and writing and speaking and whatever it is that we need to do to make, you know, the, the company grow.
0: Thank you for sharing your answer. As we're wrapping up today's episode, one last question. Let's imagine there is a group of people who are passionate about working with each other, who have, I don't know, small consultancy, who wants to do products. What would be top two or three pieces of advice for them on getting started with their product portfolio, with their team organization? I don't know if
1: I have three, but I think the number (laughs) one that I tell... That, that I think worked for us, and I can only speak from our personal experience, but I think for us, what really made a big difference in Beanstalk long ago was that we committed a full-time person to the product. And just doing that, I think that the challenge we had with consulting was, you know, one person could be making money, and one person could technically be not making money, right? So it's like, do we put somebody on a client project and make money that week, or do we put them on the product, and not really see any money come back from that. And so, or, you know, or have a more more linear definition of money, right? It's much clearer your ROI when you have a client project or not. And so I think that the challenge that I, I, I talk to a lot of agencies who are working on products, the challenge that they run into is that it's we can't commit more time to it because we're losing revenue. And so what we did when we had the same exact challenge and the same concern was we hired somebody full-time to work on Beanstalk. And that made a huge impact because now they're not an option to go to consulting and now they're building something and you have the full time and you start seeing the momentum and you start seeing the results of that hard work. And then it becomes easier to start saying, okay, let's scale back on consulting. But until we had that full time person, it was extremely hard to commit any time to building a product. And then it's a, it's a spiral, right? You're not working on it. It's not growing. It's not growing. You're not working on it. You're not working. It. It's not growing, you know, and it's like, you're and just, it's done. <laughs> yeah. And it's back to that. And then the rest is, you know, make sure you build something people want. I mean, that's, that doesn't change, you know, like that's, right. the, most, that's <laughs> the most important thing. And, you know, there's people much smarter than me can talk to people talk about that stuff. But from a consulting to product perspective, I think having a dedicated person
0: really made an impact on us that's a great tip thank you so much well where can people find you and uh, your team online
1: <laughs> so we're just wildbit.com you'll find everything you need and I am uh, Natalie Negel on Twitter so you can find me there
0: amazing thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wisdom and I hope your team blossoms and you experience great product success <laughs> thank you thanks Jane this was really fun thanks for having me Thank you. Have a great day.
1: You too. Bye-bye.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It will help other people discover this podcast.